morning. All right, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And you know that we are in this sermon series on the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Last week, we looked at Paul's relationship with Timothy to learn some lessons about Paul as the mentor. We had 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 as our primary text, but that text led us to several other places in God's word. And we learned that these mentor, protege, these discipler, disciple relationships are definitely part of God's plan, his design for the local church and for the Great Commission. We saw Paul's affection for Timothy as he calls him his son. We saw that Paul knew Timothy well enough to give him personal and very specific encouragement. We looked at several places where this was the case, right? Lord, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. Take a little wine for your belly. Like he understands him and he knows him well enough to give specific and personal encouragement. Thirdly, we saw that there's a pattern, an expectation of reproduction. What I have passed on to you, what you have received, passed on, pass on to faithful men who can in turn teach others. Like there's this expectation that we will receive and pass on what the Lord has given to us. And finally, we saw the expectation of suffering, which we're going to talk more about today. For application last week, I invited you to thank God for the people who invested in you. Like Paul invested in Timothy, thank God for those who preached the gospel to you so that you repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. Thank God for the people who told you about the holiness of God. Thank God for the people who told you about the sinfulness of mankind, not just generally mankind, but you specifically taught you about how you deserve wrath from a holy God and separation from him for all of eternity because of your sin. Thank God for the person that told you about Jesus Christ's death on your behalf on the cross. How he took your sin as if it was his own and died suffering the wrath that you deserve. Thank God for the person that told you he didn't just die, but he rose again in victory over sin and death. Thank God for the person who invited you to repent of your sins, to turn away from your sins, and put all your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Thank God for the people who preached the gospel to you. Thank God for the people who taught you God's word after you became a Christian so that you could grow in maturity. Thank God for the people who invested in your life with encouragement and opportunities for service. Also, ask yourself the question, who are you investing in in that same way? What is the legacy that you are leaving? Into whose life are you investing? I'm totally convinced that this is God's design for the church and that he intends for all of us to be a part of that design. Not just a few, not just a few disciplers and disciples, not just a few mentors and a few protégés, not just a few people receiving and giving, passing on what the Lord has given to him, but to you, but all of us involved in that process. That's the design for the local church. Well, as I said today, we're going to talk about Paul as the sufferer. And there's several important lessons from God's word for us today, but I want to be really careful. As I preach this to you today, I want to be really careful. And Pastor Dylan was super helpful this week to help me recognize that there are some in the room who have had the best week of their life. Like some of you have just had the best week ever. And you came in on cloud nine rejoicing and celebrating and delighting in God's goodness and kindness to you. And there are others who have had the worst week of their lives. And I know that's the case. Some of you have gotten news that would devastate anyone in this room. Some of you continue to meet brick wall after brick wall in some pursuit. Some of you have experienced devastating loss. And you came in in the pit today. Not smiling. 
but barely holding back tears. And as I preach today, I want to be sensitive. For those who are having the worst day ever, I don't want today to feel like I'm picking on you. I certainly don't want the message, the the truths in God's word to serve as salt in your wound. I want us to all recognize that there's a process between saying this is awful and eternity is awesome. Like sometimes it takes us a while to get along in, in that process. But he's given us a process. The Lord has given us a process. We talked in our study of Psalms not too long ago about the language of lament, learning to lament, turning to the Lord in the midst of our pain, complaining to him honestly and humbly complaining to him with transparency, asking him to work in a way that would settle our complaint and satisfy our deep longings and trusting him, trusting him at the end of the day and praising him no matter what. He's also given us a body for things like this, a church body, a family to live life together with. He's given us a community in which to process all of our pain. And he's given us the wonderful gift of prayer. Isn't prayer just a beautiful gift in the midst of your dark days? To be able to cry out to the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the sustainer of everything that exists, the Lord of all lords, to be able to cry out to him as your father and say, help, I need help, and know that he hears you. Oh, what a privileged prayer is. If you're having your worst day ever, I don't want you to hear from me today, your suffering is not a very big deal. Don't think your suffering is small potatoes. It's a huge deal. I don't want you to hear from me, suck it up, dry it up, get over it. I don't want that to be my posture at all today if you're having a terrible week. I want you to know that it may really be terrible. But you're not alone. It may really be terrible, but you're not alone. You are loved. You can look around this room and know that you are loved. You can look to the Lord and know that you are loved. You can trust the things that we sang a second ago, that he will hold you fast. When you fear your faith may fail, he will hold you fast. You're not alone. You're loved. You don't walk alone. I would encourage you, if you're having the worst week ever, to share that burden here in this room, share it with brothers and sisters. Share it with someone else, as one of my friends said, before it crushes you. We are intended by God to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law. Look around, reach out, cry out. It may be terrible, but you're not alone. It may be terrible, and I want you to know that it won't always be like this. It won't always be like this, this darkness that you are in. It won't always be like this. In Christ... It won't always be like this. We know, Paul tells us, that this present suffering does not compare to the glory that waits. It won't always be like this. A day of glory is coming. We know that John teaches us in Revelation chapter 21 that a new day is coming, a day when there will be no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more death. He's going to dry it all up. And he will bring a new day. If you are in Christ, it won't always be like this. But friends, let me say clearly, if you are not in Christ... Your present suffering is only the beginning. The day that is coming, if you are not in Christ, will not be a day of deliverance, but the beginning of eternal suffering, eternal condemnation, eternal torment and judgment. Good news is, every one of us who are in Christ were once not in Christ. Every one of us who have hope were once hopeless. 
every one of us who enjoy eternal life were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. And he can do the same for you today. So I invite you already, like, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ today. And have hope. Not hope that the day will get brighter, but hope that a new day is coming that will last forever and ever. And for those of you who are having the best day, you may come in here feeling like suffering is a million miles away. But we all know that that could change in an instant. Suffering could come before the service is over. Your phone could ring. You get the worst news ever. Tragedy could strike out of the clear blue. And I'm convinced that we will not develop a good theology of suffering in the midst of our suffering. So if you're having your best day ever, then today is going to be a really helpful day for you to prepare for your worst day ever. To be able to develop a good theology of suffering in the midst of good times is the way God has designed it. But listen, even when we develop a good theology of suffering in the good times, that doesn't mean that it won't be difficult to hold on to that good theology in the midst of our suffering. We'll have to hold tightly to the truths that we'll see today in God's word when the pain comes. Also, we'll talk a lot today about the need for community in the midst of our suffering. And though sometimes that does develop in the midst of our suffering, it is better to develop that community before you are suffering so that you know to whom to turn when the suffering comes, right? So maybe let this serve as, a, as an encouragement to you to be investing in the people around you when you're on the high so that when the low comes, you will know where to turn. Be serving people who are in the valley so that when you find yourself in the valley, you will know who will be there to serve you. Look around. Help somebody. And trust that you will be helped when the day comes that you have a need. Maybe if you're having a great week, remember the kindness of God today. Put up a landmark today so that when the dark days come, you'll remember what the light was like. So good days, bad days, everything in between, we're together. We're together, we, God has given us each other, and we are in his presence. And we know that he loves us on the good days and the bad days. Our main text today is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 to 29. But we're going to look at several other places. I've told you before that in my notes, uh, when I am referencing another passage of scripture, uh, that'll be on the board, it's green. If I'm referencing a Bible scholar, it's red. It's like all green today. This is like St. Patrick's Day uh, sermon today. It's like all references to other passages of Scripture, seeing that, that the, the truths that I'm laying out are not truths that I have experienced exclusively, but truths that we see clearly in God's Word. So 2 Corinthians 11, start in verse 23 and read with me. This is, this is God's Word. It says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. Paul says, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten, times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, 
there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray in this moment for those who are facing their darkest day. Would you comfort them, not with mere sentiment or platitude, not with empty well wishes, but with solid truth from your word, with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in them, and with the fellowship of this church, would you comfort them? And we pray for those who are having their best day. Would you teach them in the light how to walk when the night gets dark? Would you use them to bring comfort and hope to those who are hurting in our midst? Father, we ask that you would teach and grow us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. So like I said, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is our main text. But before we get to that and talk about Paul's actual suffering, I want us to rewind a bit and see a very important principle from the conversion and calling of the apostle that we looked at a few weeks ago. Like from the very beginning of his Christian life, the suffering was promised. It was expected. Look at Acts chapter 9 on the screen. Ananias, you remember this? Paul's on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. Bright light. The Lord speaks to him. His life is forever changed. And there's this guy in Damascus named Ananias whom the Lord taps to embrace the Apostle Paul and welcome him into the church. Ananias at first is like, wait, we've heard about this guy? In fact, that's where we'll pick it up. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But listen to verse 15. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. That's Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Like from his conversion... And his calling to service, there was a promise from the Lord himself that he would suffer much for the Lord's namesake's sake. So we see that this was an expectation from the very beginning of Paul's Christian life. Hardship, pain, and adversity. This was a promise from the Lord. It's not the kind of promise we like to hear from the Lord, right? In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. That's a promise. Not the kind of promise we write in our little promise book but a promise nonetheless and grace that he would tell us so. It's a promise from the Lord. And that leads us to our first big idea for the day. Number one, suffering is expected and should not take us by surprise. Christians, believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, suffering is expected and it should not take us by surprise. We see this in the earliest days of Jesus' public ministry in that foundational teaching unit that we often call the Sermon on the Mount, in arguably the most familiar part of that unit that we call the Beatitudes, Jesus lays out for his earliest followers that they can expect suffering. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on and doubles, doubles down and says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Suffering is expected and should not take us by surprise. Jesus says it plainly. 
And it's wild, right? He says, blessed are you when you suffer like this. That's, that's where blessing is. He also says, rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great. This is not the way we often think about suffering. And yet this is the way Jesus speaks of it in his earliest ministry. In the Sermon on the Mount, throughout that body of teaching, Jesus is reorienting his followers from a worldly perspective to a kingdom perspective on a number of things, right? On the law and sin and relationships. And here, he's reorienting their perspective from a worldly perspective of suffering to a kingdom perspective on suffering. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Rejoice and be glad when they make fun of you and say all kinds of things about you. Your reward in heaven is great. Notice also that Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not if. Blessed are you if that happens, but when it happens. We see it in the teaching of Jesus. We also saw the expectation of suffering as we studied through Pastor Peter's letters in here on Sunday mornings months ago. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Pastor Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Verse 15, he says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Don't you love Pastor Peter? Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal as if some strange thing were happening. Seems like what Jesus says. Seems like what Paul says. Seems like what we see all throughout the scriptures. That there is an expectation of suffering. And it should not take us by surprise. This is not abnormal. Do not be surprised when you suffer. You are blessed. Rejoice. We'll talk about how we get to that as we move on today. Second big idea that we want to talk about today is Paul's actual experience of suffering that we read about in 1 Corinthians 11, that text that we read at the beginning, where he gives this laundry list, right, this resume of suffering, Five times I received the 39 lashes at the hand of the Jews, right? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And what he doesn't say there, we read in other places, is that he was dragged outside of that city and left for dead. Shipwrecks and beatings, hunger and thirst, exposure. He goes on and on about the dangers. Did you catch that? Dangers from this, dangers from that, dangers from here, dangers from there. It seems like dangers everywhere. And as we read that resume of Paul's sufferings, I think we can learn a few lessons. Number one, suffering comes in a variety of forms. Like, let's establish that. Suffering comes in a variety of forms. Even in this list that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 11, we see that there are internal sufferings and external sufferings. Right? There's, there's sufferings of his body and there's sufferings of his soul, of his spirit and of his mind. He talks about external pain when he talks about beatings, lashings, stonings, hunger, and exposure. I've read lots of historical accounts about what the body of the Apostle Paul must have looked like. Particularly his back. As he talks about five times receiving from the Jews the 39 lashes. His back must have been wrecked. 
beaten with rods, stoned. He would have had broken bones and bruises. Most tradition would say that Paul could barely walk, stand upright. His body was wrecked in this suffering. He talks also about just ailments that he experiences, illnesses. In fact, in one letter, it seems like he's got something wrong with his eyes, some kind of disease in his eyes that is a problem for the people who would look at him. He had external sufferings, but he also had internal sufferings. Did you notice at the end of that text, he says this, apart from such external things, this is verse 28, 2 Corinthians 11, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me concerning, uh, of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Now, now you may look at that and say, oh man, he's just worried, just worried about these people. And I hope that you know a pastor well enough to know what this looks like. The intense concern for his local church, let alone Paul's intense concern for all these churches that he has planted, all these sons and daughters in the faith that he feels responsible for. The intense concern. And then he doubles up on that and he says, who's weak without my feeling that weakness? Who's led into sin without my intense concern over that? To watch them walk away. Paul's not unaffected by that. But that's not external suffering. That's not, that's not something you would be able to see on his back. You would only see that on his heart. Yet he's honest about it. So there's a variety of suffering, right? There's external suffering. There's internal suffering. We also see that there's a difference between persecution suffering and providential suffering. That's what I'm going to call it. Persecution suffering arises directly as a result of proclamation. Right? And Paul experiences a lot of that. Why did he get stoned to death and drug outside of Lystra and left for dead? Why did that happen? It was because he was saying that Jesus is the Christ and that salvation is only found in him. And some Jews from another town came. Many scholars believe killed him by stoning him to death, although God raised him back up. If not, almost killed him. God raised him back up, and he went right on preaching the gospel. There is suffering that is a direct result of proclamation, and that's what persecution is, and I want you to know that. It's not, persecution is not suffering because you believe in Jesus. Persecution doesn't come because you trust in Jesus. Persecution comes because you proclaim Jesus as Lord, and you do it loudly. That's when persecution comes. So there's persecution kind of suffering, and then there's just providential suffering. There's just suffering that comes because we live in a, in a broken world. There's suffering that comes because we're human. There's suffering that comes because other people are human. There's suffering that's more general. It's not a direct result of our proclamation, but it comes nonetheless, and it hurts nonetheless, right? So let's recognize that there's a variety of suffering. Some of it is persecution, and some of it is general providence, And let's be clear, I'm trying to address both categories, not just persecution. In fact, I'm trying in this message to address all suffering that the Christian experiences. Not not just persecution, but general suffering. I told you before, if you're not a Christian, there's eternal suffering to come. Run to Jesus, repent of your sins. He's the only one who can rescue you from that. Suffering is is a variety, internal and external, persecution and providence. Suffering is a spectrum too. There's severe suffering and minor suffering. There seems to be a spectrum as Paul uh, describes it here in 2 Corinthians 11. 
even in the physical, external suffering. It's one thing to go hungry. It's one thing to experience a few sleepless nights. It's a whole other thing to experience 39 lashes from the Jews five times over or to be stoned and dragged outside of the city and left for dead. And I'm learning to see the spectrum of my own sufferings. Like as I look back on my life and experience today's sufferings, I'm getting better at putting them somewhere on the spectrum. But I will tell you this, whatever is going on today seems like a big deal today. Like even if, even if mentally I'm able to say, relative to other things I've experienced, I give this a three. It still feels difficult on that day. There's a variety of severe suffering and minor suffering. There also seems to be variety in where it happens. Paul, as he describes all of this, says it happens at home, it happens away. I want us to observe that there didn't seem to be any truly safe place for Paul in this world. There didn't seem to be any place he could retreat to that there was not suffering. He talks about in the city, in the wilderness, with the Jews, with the Gentiles, at home, far away. Everywhere he turned, there was suffering. And you know why? Because there is no safe place here. This world is broken. It is doomed for destruction. The only safe place is in the shelter that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only safe place that will last is our eternal home with him. This is not our home. And part of our experience as strangers and aliens in this world who actually belong to a different kingdom, part of our experience as strangers and aliens here will be suffering. Our hope of peace, our hope of deliverance from suffering lies beyond this world in the very presence of God. Don't forget that. And don't settle for a promise that's short of that. There are a lot of preachers who are peddling a promise that's way short of eternal deliverance. They are promising, do this, do that, and you will have a happy life. Do this, do that, and you will have a healthy life. Do this, do that, and you will have a prosperous life. And they are talking about here, exclusively. I think when we read in the scriptures, we say, it's going to be hard here. But trust in Jesus, and you will have a home forever and ever. So, we see the promise of suffering. It's expected. It should not take us by surprise. We see the variety of suffering in the actual experience of the Apostle Paul. And I want us to spend some time now, for the rest of our time, talking about the purpose of suffering. The purpose of suffering, as Paul describes it. In several places, Paul makes clear that he understands that his varied sufferings are accomplishing something good. His variety of sufferings are accomplishing something good. He declares pretty clearly in a few different places what he understands to be the divine purpose behind the pain that he's experiencing. And I'm going to show you a few of those places, but what this is not exhaustive by any means. And if we were to look beyond Paul's writings to other biblical authors, we would see even more purpose in our suffering. Like how the author of Hebrews links pain, specifically discipline for sin, as proof of our sonship and the path to maturity. The author of Hebrews says, that pain that you experience at the hand of a loving father is evidence that you are indeed his son. 
And that pain is meant to bring you onto the path that leads to maturity. The author of Hebrews teaches that clearly. And does not James speak of that same path of maturity? In James chapter 1, he says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What I'm trying to show you is I'm going to give you a bunch of reasons, purposes that Paul identifies about his suffering. But if we didn't limit ourselves to the Apostle Paul's writings, we could see this all throughout Scripture. A bunch of other purposes. But what does Paul say? Well, first, he says that one of the purposes in his suffering is so that he can comfort others who, have, who are suffering. Look at 2 Corinthians 1. By, by the way, like 2 Corinthians is the manifesto for suffering. Like all, all, oh, there's so much we can learn uh, from, suffer, from Paul about suffering in 2 Corinthians. But look at chapter 1, the very beginning of the letter. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that, circle that, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's the big idea, right? He comforts us so that we can comfort others with the same comfort we have received from him. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Paul says, one of, the, one of the reasons for these sufferings that I've experienced is so that I will be comforted by the Lord and they can be helpful to you. And he says, and that is reproduced in you. You then will be able to help each other in these same sufferings. Read on and listen to just how honest he is about the depth of the suffering in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that, so that we despised even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of life within ourselves, so that, circle that one especially, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. That, that's like five or six purposes going on there, right? Primarily, he says, so that I can comfort others with the comfort that God gives to me, so that I will learn to depend on God and not on myself, God who raises the dead, so that we will come together in prayer for one another. There's a lot of purpose there, good purpose in the sufferings that Paul's experiencing, right? But he also talks about humility. Not just the purpose of comforting one another, but the purpose of learning humility. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that, he, that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So for context's sake, he's just been talking about the experience he had of being caught up into the third heaven and hearing inexpressible words which man is unable to speak. And he says, because of this, because I was given this great revelation, there was also given me a thorn in my flesh to keep me from exalting myself, to keep me from exalting myself, to make me humble. The purpose of the thorn was to keep him from exalting himself and to show him God's power is perfected in man's weakness. But even as he describes this, do you recognize it's a process? He's like, I got the thorn in my flesh. And so what was his first move? To beseech the Lord to take it away. Three times I begged the Lord to remove it from me. Lord, Lord, this hurts. Take it away. Lord, this is killing me. Take it away. Lord, I'm dying here. Take it away. And the Lord says, no. No. My grace is sufficient. My power is perfected in this weakness. Probably not what he was hoping to hear. But it's what he was told nonetheless. And do you catch his response after that? In the text, he says, so I'll gladly boast. I'll gladly boast in my weakness. For when I'm weak, he's strong. So he went from begging the Lord to take it away to hearing about God's purpose in it to rejoicing that it is a display of God's grace in his life. My guess is that didn't happen in one night. My guess is that was a process to get there. But he saw the purpose. We also know that he saw not just the purpose of humility in his sufferings, but also the purpose of learning contentment. We got to talk about this with the dear sister a second ago. Philippians chapter 4, a passage you're familiar with. It says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity and any And every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What's the secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's the secret of being content. I can do it all through Jesus Christ. Not lift a thousand pounds, not score the winning touchdown, but endure and persevere. Whether I got a lot or a little, what I need is him. And he is enough. Paul seems to indicate that part of the purpose of these highs and lows was to teach him contentment. And so I want to ask you, would Paul have learned the secret if it was all high all the time? Would Paul have learned the secret of being content? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Would he have learned that secret if it was all easy? It was always only abundance and money and power and great parking places. No. He wouldn't have learned the secret if he hadn't experienced the variety, the highs and the lows. He also talks about a purpose of completing what is lacking in Christ's suffering. I will be honest with you, this is complicated. And we're not going to treat it fully today, but he does speak it clearly in Colossians chapter 1. In verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So he says, I I rejoice in my afflictions. In those afflictions, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions 
on behalf of the body. Right? So the mistake would be to say that Paul sees his sufferings as atoning value. That somehow 39 lashes, shipwrecks, and all these other things are completing what was lacking in Christ's atoning work. That, he, that Paul is paying for sins. That's absurd. That would be blasphemy. Paul himself would, would condemn himself for saying something like that. Right? That cannot, cannot be what he's talking about. Seems to be what he's talking about here is he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in his spread of the gospel to the nations taking the gospel to places it has not gone so that Christ's perfect atoning value will be applied to all for whom he died. And in the process of getting the message to all those for whom he died, Paul himself is suffering in that process. So it's this like completing of the mission by taking the message of Christ's full atonement to the nations and suffering in the process. That's complicated. That's like, all, that's like six weeks worth of sermons right there. But he speaks about it as purposeful suffering. And then finally, maybe, we'll see. He says part of the purpose of his suffering is to create a longing for heaven. And I'm going to talk about this more in in a few weeks, about Paul's just rock-solid confidence that he was going to glory. Rock-solid confidence that this world was going to be wrapped up and he was going to dwell forever with the Lord. And how that got him through so much of his pain. But his suffering, he says, created a longing for heaven. Look at Romans 8. He says, The Spirit testifies within our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. You catch that? Suffer with him, so that we will also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves... Having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. You catch how he talks about this groaning? I want you to know that that groaning is not just belly aching over the current pain. Uh, that's not what our groaning looks like. It's not just us saying, oh, this stinks. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, my dad says, nothing's easy. That's not groaning. Groaning is not mere belly aching over the current pain. Groaning is longing for something better. It's recognizing the present pain and comparing it to the glory that comes and says, oh, I can't wait for that. Oh, we want to get there. It's a longing for a better day. A day that John describes in Revelation 21. So that we can say with confidence, it won't always be like this. A new day is coming. Listen to these words and be comforted by them. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God 
made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Hallelujah for that, right? A new day, a new city, a new earth, a new heaven is coming, and it will be totally different. And maybe my favorite part of the whole thing is verse 5 when it says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. I love that part because the promise is great, but then he doubles, triples down on the promise, right? He says, Listen, I'm the one making all things new. This is not something that a political leader is going to usher in. This is not something that the church in all of its brokenness is going to bring about. He says, I'm going to make all things new. And then he triples down on it and says, write it down. (laughs) Write it down because these words are faithful and true. Oh, man, this new day that we are longing for, that we are groaning for is certain and sure. And we can live every moment in this life for that day. We can persevere in all the troubles as we long for that day. And listen, Paul says that the troubles of this day are making me long for that more. Making me desire that day even more. And some of you are experiencing that. And I don't want to generalize this too much, but I think as we get older, that happens. As we get older and life gets more and more difficult here, it creates in us a greater sense of longing for there. Right? Oh, that's what a day of rejoicing that will be. We sing that when it's dark. There are a lot of purposes in our suffering. It creates a longing for heaven, teaches us contentment, fosters humility, equips us to comfort others, makes us mature, proves that we are children of God. There's a lot of purpose in our suffering. It's not meaningless. So, track with me on this. Rewind to the very beginning. If suffering is promised, as it was for Paul at his conversion, as it was from Jesus in the Gospels, if it's promised, and if it's varied, some of it's persecution, some of it's providence, some of it's internal, some of it's external, some of it's big, some of it's little. If it's promised, and it's varied, and it's purposeful, If if those things are true, then what should our posture be toward suffering? That's the question I want you to chew on. If it's promised, if it's expected, if it's normal, if it comes in a variety of forms, and it has divine purpose, then what should our posture be toward it? Chew on that. I'll give you a few thoughts that will help you start chewing on it. Number one, if all that is true, I think it's okay to ask the Lord for it to be removed. We see that in the scriptures. Three times Paul asks for it to be removed. It's okay to cry out to the Lord, this really hurts. The Lord Jesus himself did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was agonizing over the pain that was coming and cried out in that agony, sweating drops of blood even. It's okay to ask for it to be removed. It's okay to tell the Lord it hurts. But we must recognize that his grace is sufficient and we must get to the place where we rejoice 
It's okay to ask for it to be removed. It's not okay to assume that the Lord has done something wrong by not removing it. That's not okay. It's not okay for Paul to say, I asked you three times and I still have the thorn. I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. You're going to leave this thorn in my side? I'm done with you. You We have to submit to him as Lord. Remember that he is Lord. It's not okay to assume that he has done something wrong by not removing your suffering. Maybe he's using it to produce some of the things that we just talked about. It's okay to avoid suffering if it's possible. Right? Even the the Apostle Paul, like he hears about a plot to execute him, and he gets out of town. Like early on in Damascus, he was let out of a basket out of the wall to escape some guys who were were coming to get him. There are times where he avoids suffering if it's possible. And that's okay. At At one point, he's about to get beaten. And he says, is it okay for you to beat a Roman citizen? And it like shuts it all down. Do you remember this? One of my brothers was talking about that as a great example of Paul avoiding, if possible, the suffering that was coming his way. It's okay to avoid it if it's possible. It's not okay to avoid it at all costs, especially if avoiding the suffering means compromising the truth or silencing your witness. It's okay to avoid suffering if it's possible. It's not okay to do it at any cost, to spare your own neck at any cost. It's okay to welcome and embrace suffering for the pursuit of the goal. Like if, if this is the path toward maturity, if this is creating humility, if this is creating a longing for heaven, why run from any and all suffering? Why not welcome the hard day and embrace it as conforming you to the image of Christ? It's okay to welcome and embrace suffering for the pursuit of the gospel. It is not okay to go looking for it. And creating it as if you were doing some very spiritual thing. Don't make your own trouble. If there's trouble coming, it's okay to welcome it and embrace it for the pursuit of the goal. But don't go making your own trouble. Those are some things to think about as you chew on what should our posture be towards suffering. If it's promised and expected, if it's varied in its forms, and if it's purposeful, how should we pose ourselves Toward suffering. Second big idea that I want you to take away is that in our suffering, the Lord has been gracious to give us a process. That when the pain comes, we know where to go. We can go to Him with lament that we talked about, turn to Him, complain to Him, ask Him to work, and trust and praise Him no matter what. He's given us a church family. I told the guys this morning that I'm particularly sensitive today to those who are suffering. Because I know that when I have been there in the darkest night, that I have needed these reminders. I have needed these truths taught to me again. And at the same time, I have not wanted them at all. I've not wanted to hear it. I've not wanted to be reminded of those things. And I am so thankful for my brothers, particularly my brothers and sisters, who kept saying it anyway. I articulated it once. I know there's a well there. I know it's got good water in it. And I don't want to drink it. I don't want to drink it today. And my brothers, they kept saying, there's water there. And you need a drink or you'll die. 
And at some point, the Lord changed my heart, and I drank. So the Lord has graciously given us lament. He's graciously given us the church. And he's graciously given us prayer. And so I, like, I really do want to invite you, if you're in that darkness, to turn to a brother and sister and, 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 and unload on them so that they can bear some of the burden with you. That's a biblical picture. Put some of the burden upon them. I really do want that to happen because that's part of God's design for the church. But if you won't do that, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord and lay upon him in prayer. Cry out to him in prayer and trust him in prayer. Don't turn away from him in the darkness. Turn to him. He's your only hope. We sing a song that says, What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone is our hope in life and death. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, help us, uh, whether we are uh, on the mountaintop or in the darkest valley, to think rightly about suffering and have a right posture towards suffering. We pray for brothers who are broken, sisters who are devastated. That you would give them ears to hear these principles from your word today. That you would bring them comfort. That you would give them life-giving water. That the light would pierce the darkness of their souls. And you would give them hope in Christ. Pray for those on the mountain. That you would give them sensitivity to others. Develop in them good theology, good community, so that when the darkness comes, they will be ready. And we pray for those who walk in darkness. Not just the darkness of pain and sorrow, but the darkness of separation from you because of their sin and because of your holiness. God, we pray that you will wake them up today. Show them their sin. Show them your holiness. Oh, Lord, teach them as only you can that Christ died in their place so that they could be reconciled to you. Lord, we ask that you would grant them faith to trust in Jesus and repentance to turn from sins. And you would save them for your glory. For your glory forever and ever, we pray in Christ's name.